There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I have another great episode here for you today. Thank you, everyone who's been following along. I really appreciate you. And it's great to see your feedback in the comment section and likes and sharing. So thank you. Today, I welcome Alicia Palayuka. She is the National Director of Food Service Sales for Just Egg, one of the largest plant-based egg companies in the country. Please. Welcome, Alicia. All right, Alicia, welcome to the yeah. Titans of Food Service podcast. I'm so grateful that you decided to join me here today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Okay, very good. Very good. Well, why don't we start off with... How did you get into the food service industry? So I love the answer that I have to this because I started my career in beer when I was in college. And I mean, it just, it doesn't get much better than that. I had a friend who had landed a part-time gig doing marketing activations for Miller Lite. And I put my name in to join the fun, got the job, and it was less of a job and more of a, a genuine opportunity to like get paid to sample free beer to huge crowds. So, I mean, I went to the Super Bowl. I, I It was amazing. So a dream job for a 21-year-old in college. Uh, yes. After, <laughs> after I graduated, I actually spent a few years in tech and business development. And my heart just wasn't in it. I wasn't an engineer. I wasn't a programmer. I never felt like I fully understood what I was selling. I was always really dependent on an engineer or a programming architect to close the deal. And so it got to a point where I almost felt like, well, I can get it 80% there and then the rest is up to somebody else. And you know, I pivoted back to CPG where I was like, I got this. I know I can control my destiny. I know I can know the portfolio. Like I just I wanted to recreate what I had found in college that was so fun, but in, you know, a proper professional kind of nine to five full-time gig. And um, I landed a role as an area sales manager for Coca-Cola in Savannah, Georgia. And, you know, the rest was history. I was young and I had a lot of financial freedom because I graduated college on a full academic scholarship. So I had no student loan debt. And unlike, you know, so many of my peers, when there were promotional opportunities with Coke, I was like, put me in coach, I'll go anywhere. Where do you want me to go? Yeah. <laughs> and so I I just I was young and excited and flexible to go anywhere in the country. And so I just kept getting promoted with Coke so rapidly and, um, you know, built a really good career there. I did everything. It was very retail. It was exclusively retail focused in that job. I really take a lot of pride in those years because it was literally like driving a van with Coke products, like slinging a pallet jack in the back of Walmart and stacking shelves in Target. And it really shows you what you're made of. It shows you what you're made of. Like, do you have the grit and the hustle that this is not glamorous? 
And can you make it through these years to get promoted? And I, I did. And that was awesome. And then life happens as it inevitably does. And um, I met and fell in love with an Australian. And uh, we kind of did the relationship thing for a year. And after a year, I made the decision that everybody thought was absolutely bonkers and said, I'm walking away from everything I've built with Coke and I'm taking a one-way flight to Sydney and I'm going to take a bet on building a career there. And I was kind of that, like, I was naive enough to take the risk and I was confident enough that the experience I had built would land me a good job. Like Sydney's a major, there's Coke in Sydney, I'll be fine. And so I did it. And in a nutshell, it paid off big, it personally, professionally, and it set such a good reminder in my career of how many times I was able to be super comfortable with change, pivot and adapt quickly and reap the rewards. And so I was a an area marketing manager or a regional marketing manager for Coke in Dallas, Texas. And I leaped frog like five years of experience and got a national account manager role with a huge CPG called Reckitts um, in Sydney. And I was managing Compass nationally and Sodexo and Costco and Kmart and you know Australian's version of uh, Home Depot. And so I just leapfrogged like what would have taken me 10 years at Coke. I landed in Reckitts within months of, of getting to Sydney. And um, so, you know, spent a few years there. And, and that was where, to go back to your original question, food service for me kind of formally began managing Compass and Sodexo with Reckitts in Sydney. And did that for a number of years, g- was poached by Frito-Lay Australia, New Zealand, did that and then leaned even harder into exclusively food service in that role as a national account manager, really built up a lot of experience with the non-com GPO space. And um, then another personal decision, we decided let's move back stateside. And Frito-Lay Global HQ is in Plano, Texas. And so we said, okay, you know, we've lived in Dallas before. We have a network of people here. Like, let's just go back. And again, the like hyper naive slash confident kind of personality just won out for me because I went, I'll get a job at Global. Like I got a great career. It's free to lay global. Yeah. I, I know I know people there. Like I'll get a job. And it was just, I mean, I say hyper naive, but it was it was optimism, maybe less than, you know, I'd been building my career for over a decade by that point. It maybe wasn't as naive as it was just pure optimism and just like hustle and grit that I would find something. Got back to the States and was interviewing for a number of roles at Frito-Lay exactly as I'd anticipated. And I got a message on LinkedIn from uh, someone on the people team with a little company based in San Francisco called Hampton Creek that did vegan mayo, vegan salad dressings, and was intrigued enough to answer it to kind of get into like the personal side. I'd been interviewing with these jobs at Frito-Lay Global and it was kind of like cubicle hell, to be honest. It was just like this gray interior at this big HQ building and 
I was interviewing for one job and the, you know, hiring manager wouldn't even be able to like navigate me in between people's offices who were all part of the hiring decisions. Like nobody knew each other. Their offices were 10 spaces apart and they didn't interact. And I was like, oh my God, is this like, is this my future? Like, I don't know that I want this to be my future. There were some issues that I'd started having just with the ingredients and the products that I was selling. And I think as I was, you know, building my career, I started to kind of have that same mentality that I had when I moved to Sydney, which was, you know, I've built something good. I can rely on that. And as I got older, I thought, I've built something good. I can rely on that to do a job that feels meaningful, to do something with purpose that I care about. And, you know, I'm not going to go be a wildlife photographer. That's not going to pay the bills. But like, I want to do something that feels good every day. And as I was kind of reckoning with all of this and this cubicle, and I didn't like the unsustainable palm oil and Doritos, I was kind of in this mind space and this company, Hampton Creek, out of nowhere, pings me on LinkedIn. So it was almost like kismet, this timing. And I interviewed with them a couple times over the phone and was super intrigued. I flew out to San Francisco. I walked into that building and I mean, they could have offered me like nothing. I was just done. I was in love. <laughs> like it was so San Francisco tech. There were tons of fascinating people. There were, you know, there were machines. There were robotics machines that there were like five of them in the world and four were used at pharmaceutical companies and one was used at ours. And it was to help us identify like the DNA components of seeds so that we could see like in this AI system, what are the, the you know, if the plant world has 400,000 plants, what makes up those plants? And can we replicate the emulsification of properties of an egg through a bean or through a seed of some sort? And it just, hmm. there were just PhDs from Berkeley and Harvard. And I'm going, okay, wow, what? And they blew me away. They blew, they absolutely blew me away. It was um, my interview was basically come spend a day in the office and just talk to everybody. And um, you know, I tried the salad dressings. I tried the baking mixes. I tried the cookies. I tried the mayo, and everything was just straight up good food. I wasn't vegan. I wasn't plant based. I was just somebody who grew up loving food, like most of us do. And it was just great food. And the fact that it also happened to be plant-based was phenomenal. And their sustainability metrics just like spoke to my heart of this is what you've been looking for. Like this is a way to build a career doing something that feels right, that feels meaningful, that feels impactful, while also not requiring you to like sacrifice your financial freedom to have that kind of mission and that kind of impact. So I joined the business as part of their Compass team. And mm -hmm. as you do with a small business, you wore many hats and I was promoted rapidly. I've been there seven years. I think I've had nine roles. I, you know, like you just, you pivot. You, what do you need me to do? I'll do it. Put me in coach. So that's, how I got to where I am today. 
You know, I've interviewed uh, quite a few people on this podcast, and everybody has a different story on how they got to where they're at today. But right. I have to say that your story is uniquely different from others, especially <laughs> uh, meeting an Australian and, and and moving overseas and then coming back, you know, really defining your purpose and jumping in with Hampton Creek. When you were in college, you mentioned that you were uh, you were selling or promoting Miller Lite. Yeah. And did you, when you were in college, one, where did you go? And then two, what did you want to, when you were in college, what did you think you wanted to get into? Diehard Gator fan. I went to the University okay. of Florida. I was there for the back-to-back basketball national championships. Uh, wow. Tim Tebow, like years, I mean, the glory days. Yeah. It was, I, I hope for that experience for so many people because it was, it was wonderful. So went to the University of Florida managed to earn and maintain a full academic scholarship, graduated with full honors with a business marketing and entrepreneurship kind of double major. I did two programs and um, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I thought, okay, generally I just know that getting marketing and entrepreneurship is going to be broad enough that when I figure Mm -hmm. it out, I'll have something to land on. Here's an interesting tidbit. I really considered going to law school. And at the end of the day, the more lawyers that I talked to, I would be transparent and say, can you tell me like earning? What's a normal amount to earn? What are the different types of laws? And what I kind of figured out through the people that I had met along the way with Miller that were higher up, that were leading these marketing activations at a national level that I was meeting at these big activations at like the Super Bowl and things like that. I basically understood that like from a financial tract, lawyers weren't making as much as I thought they made. And I was very financially motivated for, you know, financial freedom. And so I was like, oh, well, if I go to law school, like I'll make all this money. And then I realized like I could go to law school and put myself $200,000 in debt and then like still make what I could make if I just spent those four years like hustling really hard and no regrets. Like I, I love the CPG world. I love food. I love what I do. I'm so glad that I'm I get to be out. Like one of my favorite parts of my job still to this day is I just love being in the sh- kitchen with chefs and cooking. I love mm-hmm. meet like Nick your team in you know southern and northern California and Vegas like our the team that we have like I love working with salespeople and getting them excited to try a product for the first time and excited to grow and see the opportunity. And I, I'm just so thankful that I didn't kind of follow the crowd and go to law school because I think I would have just been really unfulfilled. Yeah, no, I get that. I I actually, kind of similar to you, I, when I was in uh, college, I thought for a second that I wanted to pursue a law degree. I was really big yeah. into sports and figured maybe I can get a law degree and then become a sports agent. And so I worked at a law firm for four summers in a row. And I kind of found, I was like, this is not my thing. I, I was kind of holed up in this office and going, reading through right. papers all the time. And I watched the partners of the firm read and go, I was like, I can't do this. This is, I, I'm someone that I have to be out in the sun. The sun is where I want to be. And that's why, probably why I live in Southern California. And, but I also got a, a business degree. I did, I just did general business. So good for you for getting marketing and entrepreneurship. Yeah. That's, that is not easy to do. I really, I'm really glad that I did. 
It, yeah, that's good to get. And it, it also makes you more well-rounded. Did you study abroad or get to travel when you were in school? Do you know, I did not. Um, I did not study abroad. My This is like getting into the personal side again. I grew up very middle class. Neither of my parents have a college degree. Um, they just hustled really hard and provided a really wonderful life for us. But they instilled this like really deep fear of debt. So when I was in college, I was like, okay, I've got my academic scholarship. And like, if I go to Spain for a summer, that's like $3,000 in debt. And I can't do that. And I looked back when I was, you know, a couple years out of college and I'm like three grand, three grand. Like I totally could have paid that off so easy. So that would be like one of my, like, oh man, I should have done it. But I made up for it. I've traveled to more than 30 countries now. My passport stacked. So I will be a forever traveler for the rest of my life. But um, did you go abroad? Yeah, I, I did study abroad in school. That's why I, I, I asked, as I, I didn't know if you did. And I thought oh. it was it was such a great experience. It was, you know, kind of you living in Australia. I lived in um, Italy and I only oh. did it for four months, but it was Amazing. it was so great. But I can yep. I can definitely resonate with when it comes to finances. I too, it's like a, a control thing for me. I make a dollar and I want to do whatever it takes to hold on to that dollar and then multiply that dollar. Right. And so if, if I can't truly justify an expense, it 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 drives me my mind crazy if I have to yeah. spend money that I don't want to do. So I understand I that. I feel for like sure. as you get older, from my experience, I've let go of that a yeah. little bit. Not to an obscene level, but like I feel more comfortable splurging on things that feel valuable. But that's definitely happened as I get older and as I have less time, you know, like as you throw yourself into your career and, you know, maybe one day have a family, you just have less time. So I hear you. And I think it's something that I'm slowly just releasing. (laughs) Yes, I feel that. I I, I think I get mental clarity or at least, uh, um, yeah, just feels good if if I'm going to spend money on something that every month or I'm putting a little bit away from, you know, into a nest egg for, for future yeah. use. And so that makes me feel good. Yeah. Amen. When you're in Australia, you mentioned some of the companies that were there, some of the similar GPOs, like a Sodexo. Yeah. How was it? How is Australian business compared to business here in the United States? I would say the U S is a lot harder to navigate because of the scale of size. In Australia, you don't have as many distributors. So, you know, winning that anchor account to drive distribution could be 30% of your business to, to just have that one distributor. So there was a lot more ability from a top level for a decision maker at Compass or Sodexo to build out a menu guide and kind of roll it out and have really good compliance. And there's also a lot less products. So you don't like in the United States, you have far more options. So if I'm a chef of a Sodexo, you know, college and university, there might be, you know, my distributor coming in offering me 20 different types of cookies. And you know, I've got my distributor and I've got what's approved, but I've also got, you know, maybe a produce guy that is bringing in on the back end. So it, it was just a lot simpler in Australia. Mm. It was more streamlined. There were less distributors, there were less products, there was more compliance. So 
coming to the States was definitely kind of jumping in the deep end all over again. And it's, it's food service is a complicated beast. It is, you know, I think only just recently do I see leaders in this industry of this startup food industry, especially Mm -hmm. tech Valley startups, understanding the difference between like getting a win at whole foods. That's the win. You just send the cases and I know it's more nuanced than that, but like, that's the win. You sign a contract with Sodexo and that's like the first 5%. Then there's so much more. There's recipe development and menu development. And then you have to individually go to each location and sell it in so that the chefs know it's on the menu guide. And then you have to make sure you've got distribution and you focus on the anchor accounts. And it's just, it's a behemoth. Food service is a behemoth. Yes. It, it, you know, both the CPG world and the food service world, both selling food, they come in different packages. And the decision-making process, as you know, is so much different. I, I yeah. definitely say on, on average, the food service sales cycle is longer than the CPG uh, cycle. You know, between, you know, you get set up at Sodexo and then you go out to their accounts and uh, give it to the chefs and they have to try it and pull it through distribution. It's a whole, right. it's a whole process. And there's a lot of people in that uh, supply chain that you need to make sure that are, you know, all on the same page. You know what, Nick, I never thought about it that way, but it's like, you have to get a chain of yeses. Like, yes. so that's such a great succinct way of thinking about it is like not only do you have to get a category manager to say yes and their culinary group to say yes to get the contract but then you need like the regional account managers to say yes the distributors to say yes the chefs and the dietitians to say yes and that's to win one account and you just have to get yes yes all the way down the line so it's it's not for the faint of heart it's not, you know, it's, it's definitely has its challenges and, but I think it, it, you're constantly on the chase and there's an adrenaline rush to that, uh, yeah. which makes it a really fun industry. I agree. In I terms agree. of when you started at Hampton Creek, what mm-hmm. year did you start there and where was the plant-based world at, at that point? Yeah. Um, I started in April of 2016. Okay. And the, the idea of a plant-based egg. So we were Hampton Creek at the time. And the funding that our co-founder and CEO, Josh Tetrick, had gotten was around this idea that you could make eggs, the most ubiquitously consumed protein on the planet, from plants. And while they were working on that, the side hustle to like keep the business moving was, okay, how do we use the learnings that we've had as we're trying to make eggs from plants, how do we use all this knowledge to make other great products? And so they built out and developed this mayonnaise that was just incredible. It was an incredible emulsifier. It wasn't super oily. It had a beautiful taste and texture. And I mean, we kicked out craft mayonnaise from Compass wow. exclusively. I mean, that's how good it was in blind taste tests. That's how good it was. And so the plant-based world was definitely, I think, more... At the time, they were very keyed in, especially the non-com world was very keyed into sustainability. 
That's when they were all starting to build their sustainability 2020, sustainability 2025 metrics. And so having this company that could come and say, hey, we will go toe-to-toe with any mayonnaise. We will go toe-to-toe with your craft salad dressings. We will go toe-to-toe with your cookies, with your cookie dough. And we'll be just as good, but we'll have far better ingredients and we'll be far more sustainable. And hey, because we're a young Silicon Valley startup and we have all this venture capitalist funding, we're going to match price. And so it was a strategy. It was a it was a loss strategy to gain brand distribution, to gain awareness, to gain trial. And for years, it was just a... Uh, that's not what I was used to. I mean, with every business I'd ever been at, I had a P&L and I had to like manage my trade spend very tightly. And I walked into this business where that wasn't our model back then. Our model back then was growth and revenue. It wasn't gross margin. And so it was a really wonderful product to sell because you're walking in and people are trying it and they're seeing, oh my gosh, this is a really phenomenal Caesar dressing that doesn't have milk or Parmesan in it. Are you kidding me? And (laughs) so, you know, these incredible sustainability metrics that we had, the shelf stability, I mean, there were so many things. It was wonderful. what the game changer was for us though there there was no competition i mean like there was nobody that was doing plant-based mayos or salad dressing or cookies like it was us and that is very much thanks to like josh and our culinary team and their leadership and and the investors that they got on board that gave us the freedom to do that but the game changer was when just egg was ready and when Just Egg was ready, that they'd spent so many years in development, they discovered that a mung bean, which is a bean that is has been consumed for thousands of years, is packed with protein. In fact, our product has just as much protein as a chicken egg. They discovered that this mung bean had these similar properties, this you know gelation property when you're cooking in a pan and this emulsification property if you want to bake with it. And it just took them years of kind of like, how do we work? How do we take a bean, a hard, tiny little bean and make it scramble like an egg? They they figured it out. They unlocked it. And when Just Egg launched as a business, we kind of took a step back and Josh and and the leadership team said, we got to say goodbye to everything else. Like if we're going to do this, we have to like put a all of our eggs in one basket and we need to focus (laughs) exclusively on this skew. And so it was one skew, one skew. And they were like, we're not selling mayo anymore. Salad dressings, cookies, cookie dough, goodbye. And everybody was devastated, both customers and internally. But it just showed their faith in like, we are getting to be first to market and we are going to own the market. We are going to have market share. We're going to drive growth. And Still to this day, I mean, Just Egg launched four years ago. We're still 95% market share. And there are competitors coming in and we welcome it. Good competition makes all of us stronger. But thankfully, we've continued to innovate. So, you know, when we first launched, our product had soy. Now it has no soy. So we have a product that is just tastes like an egg, performs like an egg, has the protein of an egg, but it's allergen-free and it's no cholesterol and less saturated fat and just all of the incredible benefits around sustainability and animal welfare. It's, it's, it's a dream. It's a dream. It's why I've been here for seven years. Uh, 
That is, I mean, to go from having a book of you know pr- uh, products from mayo and cookies and to then just saying, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to focus on just one skew, which I, what do you have today? Maybe two, two skews? In food service, there's two skews. We've got some industrial <laughs> pack sizes, but I mean, it's, it's two skews. That is crazy. Yep. When yep. you started in 2016 and until today here in 2023, how has your job changed? Oh, so when I first started, we were young. The business was young. The leadership was still learning about retail and especially about food service. I mean, I can't tell you how many years it took for people in leadership to like understand why DOT is an essential part of partnering and, and succeeding in food service. And it's just in 2016 that just nobody understood food service. And I'll never forget like the amount of times that, you know, somebody new would come into some leadership role in sales and their entire background would be retail. And you'd literally be whiteboarding. Like this is how you go to market in food service. And we are not that now. We are deep on food service leadership, knowledge, Mm -hmm. experience across the board. And it is a mature company that is making responsible financial decisions to get to a path to profitability. It's not, you know, reliant exclusively on investors pumping money into it. So, you know, that pivoting from a completely growth focused, revenue focused mindset to a a gross gross margin mindset and a path to profitability so that we are a sustainability company or a sustainable company that's here for the long term. I mean, if if Josh has this incredible vision and incredible mission as as do many people on our leadership team but like if we want to get there we need to be sustainable not just for another 5 years but we need to be a sustainable profitable company for 20 years for 50 years for 150 years so i have been so lucky to learn and grow with this company as the company learns and grows and um yeah it's it's I would say we have matured in every possible way. We have made mistake after mistake after mistake, as you do when you're like growing faster than you can keep up. And we've learned from mistakes. And I, I just think that it's, it's been just such an unexpected path that my career has been able to take because I've been able to grow here and watch this business grow. And I mean, selfishly, Nick, like I am 39 years old and I am formidable in food service now because I have just been through so much and I've had an opportunity to wear so many hats that so many people at this point in their career would not be able to have if they were at a traditional large CPG company. And I just look at, you know, what I want to accomplish in my career. And I think that especially even the last year and a half has really just sharpened me in so many ways that I'm so grateful for. And I think that that's the benefit of finding a company that 
is not the CPG behemoth, but has the resources to be best in class at what they do. And we really are best in class. And so, you know, I think it'd be different if you were going to some tiny little startup where nobody got it and there wasn't that much funding. That does not sound fun. That sounds terrible. But like (laughs) this company has kind of got that sweet spot of a phenomenal program, phenomenal culinarians who are driving innovation, great leadership, funding, like best in class branding. It's just a sweet spot, man. I, I, I don't think there's a lot out there like it. Yeah, it sounds like you definitely had, I mean, for sure, the funding. And it also seemed like the leaders and the owners of the company were open to learning new things, especially mm-hmm. food service. Yep. What would you say to those out there? Because there's there's so many brands out there who are just beginning. And I'm sure they'll be at Expo West this upcoming yeah. week that are just beginning. They have a CPG uh, foothold, or at least they're starting to gain some traction there. But now they see, well, I want to get into food service because I think a lot of people think like it's more profitable in food service. Right, so I want to be right. in food service. What would be maybe just some some tips or steps that a company could take who doesn't have food service to get into food service? Yep. I think the first step that I would recommend is to hire a consultant to sit down with the leadership team and talk to them about the investment required in creating food service pack sizes. What does the market want and need? It's not just, you know, oh, I want to go into food service because it's more profitable, but do you have the capacity to manufacture what the market actually wants? What is that pack size? You know, are you in a phase where you just want revenue or are you in a phase where you want profitability and gross margin? So I think that first step is I've personally seen some companies hire deeply talented food service leaders to launch food service and they spin their wheels for a year, hitting their head against a wall, fighting with leadership and with the board on the investments that they need to make, the trade spend that's required. I mean, everybody from DOT to the broadline distributors, working within the non-com space, you know, like everybody needs their piece. And often that's not really well understood. So I've I've personally seen it, seen it fail so many times where a company that wants to get into food service just says, step number one is hire somebody great. Well, are you willing to make the investment that that person is going to tell you you have to make? Like how much money do you... If anybody ever came to me at any life and said, hey, we want you to do this, I'd be like, give me a budget and a committed budget and then I'll tell you if it's feasible or not. So I think finding and hiring a good consultant, like pay a little bit of money up front to really guide you on understanding all the nuances. What's it going to cost? What is the, you know, do pack size analysis. Who's your competitive set? I think that's step one. Step one is just level set with, is this even feasible for you? Is the market asking for this? Step two would be hire somebody great and, you know, you better be willing to empower them to succeed or they're going to take off and go somewhere else. There's too many good companies. So, you know, if you're going to hire somebody good, you better be willing to back it up and to listen and to do what they say. And if they take your go-to-market model and shred it into pieces and say pivot, you need to be humble enough to do that. You hired them for a reason. They're the expert. So that's that would be my guidance. 
I love that. I think that's really actually useful information. And I, I like the idea of hiring a consultant and determine, is this even feasible? Is the products right. that we have even going to work in food service and then hire somebody great and be open to pivot? I think that's very sound advice. And I think that's definitely something that I would share with somebody who wants to get into food service. Yeah. For our company, you know, we, we typically say we're not the make your first dollar team. So if you come into California, Nevada, where we're at, if you don't have any business built up, it's that's not really our bread and butter. It's it's I, yeah. I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. One, yeah, can the company be able to sustain and br- if we bring on a truckload of business every month, can you fulfill that order? Number one, that right. Exactly. Building up the distribution channels and educating the, the consumer here in our area about that mm-hmm. product. You know, it's expensive. It's, it's not cheap to do that. And it takes a lot of time and patience. So anybody out there trying to get into food service or maybe even trying to break into a new market uh, within the food service in- industry, such as California yeah. and Nevada, I think these would be a great step number one, step number two to get that going. Yeah. And I think like the very quick step number three is after you hire somebody great, they're going to need a team. And and like you said, Nick, I don't think that that team at that phase is a broker. That is an unfair burden to place on a broker where you don't even know how to sell your product in this space. And you're expecting somebody with a portfolio of 35 brands to do it for you. Like that's just laziness. Like if you believe in your product and food service, put your money where your mouth is, hire a great leader, empower them with a team to sell, focus on a market where you can drive deep, then pick a great broker for that market and, you know, have the team pivot to another area. I think that's the strategy that would make the most sense for winning. Definitely. When it comes to kind of on that step three, hiring a, a great team, I believe and know that you have a great team around you of uh, regional managers. How do you, yeah. how do you find great people? <sighs> They're amazing. So a year and a half ago, the leadership team, it's Hampton Creek is now Eat Just, Just right. Egg. The leadership team came to me mid-COVID and we were all just floundering and said, we have this vision and we want to grow out food service even more. And we know, we've listened, we hear you that the way to do that is a team that works for us, not just relying on the brokers. And so they asked me to build and lead a team of regional sales managers across the country. And it was a massive pivot. I'd been managing our export business internationally in South Africa and Singapore. I'd been doing work with people in India and even Russia. I mean, it was, it was, wow. in, I, when I tell you the number of hats I've been, I'm not making it up. Like <laughs> pivot, 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 pivot. And it's been awesome. Yes. So, yes. I built the job description. And just put, we put it out there on LinkedIn and we got a candidate in Chicago, Annie Aarons, and she blew us all away. She just had such a depth of experience and knowledge. Her background, she had worked for suppliers. She had worked for brokers. She was at the time working for core Um, on their chain account team. And she was just, she was so mission aligned on her 
personally. And we went through this interview process, which I purposefully made pretty grueling where you had three independent interviews with myself and two other leaders in the business. And then I said, I really want to do a panel interview where they present to us. It's COVID and we're not going to get to meet them in person. And I want to see like if their interview can relay itself to presentation skills. And that was a tip that I had gotten from a, a personal friend of mine who's built her career with Southern Wine and Spirits and, and Fever Tree. And she had suggested do this live presentation because you will see who's got it and who doesn't real quick. And Annie, you know, came prepared to this very intimidating presentation. And she'd done so much thoughtful prep that we were and, and we were blown away. And so once we found her, it set the bar really high. And it was like, well, we need more Annie's. And I think that who we would have hired before we met Annie is a very different person than who we demanded that we hire or I demanded that we hire after Annie. I was like, I know that she exists. Like this exists. Now we just have to find it in all these markets. And I was given the patience and the leeway by our leadership team to do this on my own time. So although it became the number one thing that I focused on every single day from my role, if I didn't find the right candidate, I felt no pressure to hire them anyway because we were desperate to move. And that is such a massive testament to the leadership team that I had, the, the people that I was directly reporting to and that they were directly reporting to that I was just given... I mean, they asked me to build this team. I think that conversation happened in August of 2021. And I think... I believe Annie started in October or November. And then we had like another hire in December and two in January, you know, and it was just a slow build because I was given the bandwidth to find the right people. And because I was given the bandwidth to find the right people, we developed a team that is just incredible. They are deeply experienced. They are driven and passionate and they ask questions and don't ever have any qualms about speaking up. And I mean, anybody that meets this team is just like, what you guys have is just, it's special. And so (laughs) I, I think that a lot of it has to do with that. I was just given the freedom to really like build slowly as I found what I knew we needed. Definitely, definitely. I love that. That <clears throat> I, I'm just I, I can't take down notes fast enough. I love everything that you're saying. <laughs> yeah. What would you say in the past? Let's let's say what you started seven years being mm-hmm. with this company. What is maybe a new belief or behavior or habit that you have today that you didn't have when you first started? Mm. I learned a lesson a long time ago here, working here, that leaders bring solutions, not problems. And that was because I was definitely 
asking a lot of questions and I fell into the old trope of, oh my gosh, something is a problem and I'm just going to escalate that this is a problem and pass it off. Here's the problem. So, you know, what do I do? And I had a really wonderful mentor that said, you're going about it the wrong way. You're, you're escalating problems and no one wants to open that email and address it. You need to bring solutions or options for solutions. And our global chief revenue officer, Matt Riley, who I've had the pleasure to work with for, I think, five years now, teased me relentlessly about my long-winded emails and was like, I got three bullet points in me. Like, make it more succinct. And <laughs> it it was very fair, constructive criticism. And I really deeply took it to heart. And that brevity, I've really whittled down the ability to be brief when I need to be and to not escalate problems without also providing a solution. And those are just professional skill sets, full stop, that I've learned along the way. Yeah, it's very profound. Would you say that there's, in your career, has there been any, I'm sure there's many, but has there been one that could stick out a, a defining moment that you've had? Being asked to hire a regional sales team and lead them. I mean, like mm-hmm. just, I had gone from being an individual contributor. I'd managed a single person here or there along the way but never built out and created like a brand new go-to-market model, a brand new go-to-market structure. And, and that it has been truly the pride and the happiest, most fulfilling thing I've ever done professionally. And you were once a, uh, a driven college student. What, mm. would you, what advice would you give to somebody who's maybe a junior or senior getting ready to graduate, get into the real world? What advice would you give them if they want to get to, you know, to a position where you're at today? There is a commencement address that Shonda Rhimes, who is a, she's a writer. She does a lot of television shows. She has a best-selling book. There's a commencement address that Shonda Rhimes gives years ago. And if you were to Google it, I'm sure anybody listening or watching could find it. And the nuts and bolts of her message are, Stop sitting around and just do it. Like, if you want to be a writer, write. If you want to be successful in sales, sell. So, my advice would be find a job. It's hard to vet out good leadership when you're that young. Mm -hmm. Ideally, you find a job with great leadership, with people who have the capacity and the skill set, and the resources to mentor you, and just go. Just hustle. Be the person that always follows up. Do what you say you're going to do. You know, you don't have to kill yourself to succeed. I wasn't working 80 hours a week like some of my friends in law and finance. I was having a very balanced life, but I was willing to wake up at 4 a.m., to go to a distributor sales meeting at 6 a.m. before they all got on the trucks to go out for the day. Like, Just be willing to make the sacrifices that you need to make when it's necessary. And I think that the biggest way to learn is by doing. And so mm-hmm. it's 
I didn't know. I never dreamed that this was where my career would end up. I didn't know what I wanted my career to be. So I would say, you know, if, if you're not sure, just find something where you can learn, find something where you can learn and just work hard every day, you know, talk to your peers and, I, I just hope that people are able to find wonderful leaders that will mentor them and help them grow and, and help them pivot and learn how to pivot. And I think that'll be the game changer to how to build a great career. Amazing. Well, Alicia, I want to say thank you so much for coming on to the Titans of Food Service podcast to talk about your story. And I think there's so much more we could talk about. You know, we might have to do another episode in the future. <laughs> and I appreciate you being vulnerable and open and, yeah. and talking about, uh, you know, your career. I know there'll be many people out there that resonate with your story. So thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that you're doing this. I've learned so much from the podcast that you've already done. I, I know I told you before we hit record how much I loved hearing Thaddeus with my mochi tell his story. And yes. I, I find so much, I feel like you can gain so much education and so much insight and so much experience from podcasts these days. Uh, my mm -hmm. favorite is Brene Brown, Dare to Lead. That is Ooh. just been such a phenomenal podcast to help shape me as a leader for my team. And as I was listening to your podcast with Thaddeus, I thought, this is so valuable. This is like a round table that you would have with a group at the NRA and maybe just be mm -hmm. chatting about challenges and how to overcome them. So I'm personally really grateful that you're doing this and I'm excited to listen and I'm excited to learn to everybody you know, learn from everybody along the way. And, you know, I wish you nothing but, you know, the most success with it. And I, I'm, I'm thankful for everything that you're doing. Of course. Thank you so much. That, that means a lot. My, when I started in food service, my dad said, there's no books you can read on how to be successful <laughs> in food service. You have to just get out there and do it. And so when right. I started this podcast, I was like, this is going to be my, the first iteration of a quote unquote, a, a food service book. I love uh, it. In, in podcast I love it. form. So I, I appreciate well, the compliment. I'm honored to be a part of it. Bring it on. All right. Thank you so much, Alicia. You got it. Thanks, Nick.